we're here. Hello. Hello. I'm having. I need Stop to, messing with it. It was fine. I know, but it yeah, it's sitting on a box. It's sitting on a box. So we're good. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Hi, all. Welcome. Day. It's Monday night. Generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter, and Jen is not here. Where are you, Jen? I am in Asheville. This is where I come for the summer. So I am here and um, it's so nice. The weather is so good. I don't like to rub it into the people that are still stuck down there in the swamp, but it's, uh, so good. it's pretty, it's pretty brutal, but uh, considering how bad it's been in some other parts of the world, like India and Bangladesh, where I guess yeah. 11 million people just got displaced from sea level rise. But remember, Climate change is just a theory. It's just a theory. It. It's, it's a not actually theory. happening. Um, you're just imagining it. Now go out there and go for a swim. So obviously it's been a big weekend. We Father's Day, Juneteenth. We saw what happened Friday night on Bill Maher with Crystal Ball and Bill, who is as out of touch as, you're out of touch. You're out. He, he really is. Uh, but we are very, very pleased to bring our wonderful guest this evening, who is not only someone who really understands what's going on right now, but has uh, in the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C., and can really speak to what I think are some of the really serious issues facing us today. I think I think that that's a safe way of putting it, Jen. Yeah, for sure. Very well-rounded, well-versed individual on what is going on. A lot of um, I've seen he, he's been covering a lot about what's going on in Ukraine. So we can definitely talk about that. Um, but like, this is someone we could, I don't know, we could talk about anything, really. Well, he is a radio talk show host and political analyst in Washington, D.C. He is Garland Nixon. Welcome to Generational Change. Why, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. And how was your Father's Day weekend? Oh, it was wonderful. I, let's see, what did I do? I did, you know what I did? I went, believe it or not, went out and, and, and hung out with a, uh, a friend of mine in D.C. And we just like grilled and munched on salmon and talked about all mm. kinds of politics. I love D.C. I can't say I love all the people in D.C. I think that that's a fair way of describing it. It's a mini New York. It's a city I've always loved. And hey, look, if you're going to be in politics in any capacity, you better like it in, in some way, shape or form. It's swampy. It's swampy. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. And so today is t a federal holiday, uh, which is good. We frankly should have uh, a lot of federal holiday, a lot of four day work weeks. Uh, what has what has this meant to you? Because obviously this is a this is a topic that I think you could speak much better on. Um, you know, we're very much about supporting the efforts that are necessary in order to right a lot of the wrongs in our nation's history, especially when it comes to living wages, universal health care and whatnot. But of course, reparations is something that we support when it really comes to the heart of the issues that we're facing. Yeah, it's nice to have a federal holiday, but I think there's a hell of a lot more that needs to be done. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree with you, certainly. And I think that, you know, the more I study politics, the more, you know, I start to see um, political change through the perspective of probabilities you know, what do I have the best chance of getting now? I don't want to sound like an old wonk that just says, you know, what can we get through? Because that's not what I mean, because what can we get through is always like the worst possible thing. You can get through like what the billionaires and the donors will allow you to get through if you really yeah. un understand D.C. But what I mean is this um, from the perspective of addressing the needs of 
let's just say of black people, right? Okay. The majority of black people fall in the um, working class, working poor, poor, those, those, those particular groups. And I tend to feel that if you say to America, if you say to our political system, look, can we do something to right the wrongs of you know, black Americans, whoever, you know, uh, Native Americans or whatever, um, you're not going to have a lot of luck. I think it's a more I think you have a better chance by addressing it from the perspective of economic class and say, how can we get things changed that will help people in the economic classes where most black people are? Because you know what you find? That's where you're going to find a lot of Latinos. That's where you're going to find a lot of Native Americans. And so if you can. And, and then, of course, there's a lot of white people in those classes more and more, by the way. But so I think if you're going to get change to try to get things to address the issue of, of the economic class that you're in, certainly the super wealthy are working to address the economic class that they're in quite successfully, I might add. And, and so that's why. I believe, don't get me wrong, I believe that from the perspective of justice, that there are a lot of groups, African-Americans and certainly um, Native Americans, who have, if you're to just go to court and state your case, I think it's blatantly obvious that there is a, a legal case that they've been harmed and should be, the right should be wrong. But whether you're going to get that through politics in America, I think you're better off going after things, at least for the foreseeable future, for the immediate future, going after things that help people in your economic class. And that's the most effective and immediate way to, to, to help people of color. Yeah. We talk a lot about the importance of this, of people recognizing that this is a labor issue, this is a class issue, um, and that that is where our greatest strength will be in terms of dealing with like the corporate oligarchy that has taken over our government. But um, I still think like to me, when I think of this holiday and I've just done a little bit of research because I know there's like this myth of Juneteenth, this ridiculous myth, um, but it really is the concept is based on an annual meeting based on a promise that was supposed to be, um, I forget, I always forget the name. I forget the name of the act that was the 40 acres and the meal, the number, I forget the name of the number, the proposition. Um, that was supposed to go through. And Juneteenth was used to be called Jubilee Day. And it was the day where you're talking about getting everything that was owed to you based on what had just, but now, okay, slavery is over, but we're not free, like free to do what? Free to have what? So I think it's important reminder. Like, I, I, I think that it, this is not something where... I don't know. I just think it should be a lot more than just saying, oh, yes, we recognize that we weren't good to black people and we freed the slaves and we should recognize that. I think we need to I need we need to pay our debt. I agree with you. You know, where I think my position comes from, to be quite frank, cynicism, you know, being black in America for a lot of years. And, you know, it gets to the point where you just to some extent don't feel like that you can get justice. You just kind of feel like America does not want to admit the reality, you know, of if America was to sit down as a country and we were to look at the reality of what happened regarding race, that they brought a bunch of people here, they enslaved them. After they enslaved them, it was apartheid. We had an apartheid state. And then the apartheid state kind of dissipated, but not really. It formally 
formally, legally kind of dissipated, but socially, um, in so many ways, it remained. And and um, so America created this huge class of very poor black folks, created it intentionally, and then took actions to, you know, such as uh, inferior education and things of that nature to keep that going and never said, OK, we got to stop right here and do something to correct it. They just like kind of woke up one day and said, well, how come all the black people didn't catch up with all the white people? Never the it really admitting that something would have to happen to make that, you know, when you create a huge group of poor people and deliberately keep them from getting a decent education and all that kind of stuff. It's not just magic that they're all going to wake up the next day and they're all going to be, you know, made whole. And America just can't, won't, excuse me, America as a country won't um, grasp that. So I'm kind of cynical. So I'm just, to be honest, so it's, I, I just kind of look for any way that we can do something to address the issue. You know, if that makes sense to you, it's not that yeah, I'm like, no. oh, no, I'm not for all that stuff, but I'm yeah. probably very, very cynical. Yeah, no, I for sure. I mean, obviously, things like health care and living wage and those kinds of reforms will disproportionately benefit people of color because that's who's disproportionately suffers as a result of our policies. But um like when you say we're not Jim Crow anymore, but those things to me like are so ingrained in our systems, everything from like taxes, like, like everything is so like ingrained with that racist kind of policy. And it's just, it's ridiculous. But the cutting of the check is a separate issue to me. And and I'm not saying we're not Jim Crow anymore at all. I'm not saying that's not what I'm saying. Um, It's something totally different. And it's that the if the for the most part, the racism, um, the overt part of it became, you know, that people show disdain. You can't come out and say it anymore. But, right. you know, you can't admit that it exists. You have to say the only kind of racism that can be acknowledged in America is overt. You call somebody your name, you yell out it's all of the things that became part of America. Um you know, they're they're not accepted. We're just supposed to. In fact, it's even worse than that. Two things. To bring up the reality of how America has treated black people is considered an attack on America. You're not supposed to say that stuff. You're putting down America and saying bad things about America, even though it's reality, you know. And 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 I think that's um, part of the problem that we have. The other part is this discrimination against black people has actually been used as a tool against white people so that when they, the poor white people say, you know, we'd like to get certain, certain, you know, we'd like to get healthcare or whatever. And oftentimes it's kind of pushed like, no, no, no. Cause all the poor lazy black folks will get it. So, you know, they kind of like convince white people like poor white people don't get this particular thing, this safety net thing that the government could get you because it's just going to go to poor black folks. When the fact is, if you look at the numbers, like 85 percent of the people that will get this particular thing will be white. But they focus on the 15 percent and say just a bunch of poor, lazy black folks. And it's used as a tool against working poor and poor white people to help keep them down. We're speaking with Garland Nixon. Uh, I think that. You bring up an excellent point, Garland, that I really want to touch upon. Um, We had a fantastic candidate on our podcast uh, multiple times in uh, Marcel Dixon, who ran for Congress in South Carolina's 6th Congressional District against Jim Clyburn. 
Now, they had their primary election. And unfortunately, despite the fact that Clyburn represents, I think, the fifth or sixth poorest district in the country and has for over 30 years, he still was able to achieve a 90 plus percent uh, voting uh, margin for the election. And I mean, I, I have no doubt that a big part of it, of course, is that Marcel probably didn't have a lot of funding and an infrastructure that necessarily was there. I have no doubt that Clyburn, uh, my understanding is that his, I, I, th- I think it's his daughter is um, on the election committee or something. I'm sure the roots go even deeper than that. But from your perspective, despite all the things we know about Representative Clyburn, and I have no doubt, look, judging by the videos and the town halls that Marcel was at, he did a really good job of at least informing people as to what's going on. So why did so many revert back to the old way of thinking when things are so bad, particularly in the district that Clyburn represents? Well, I think one of the reasons is that American politics is a, it, it, what we have been taught by our um, our leaders is to view politics through the perspective of personality. Always, oh, every way, foreign policy, the perspective of personality, not policy, not, um, you know, in nothing like that. So it is not about um, uh, uh, what the policies that Jim Clyburn represents. It's Jim Clyburn. Do you like him or not like him? Do you recognize him? Do you think he's a good guy? Things like that. And it's all about Jim Clyburn rather than the policies. I mean, the other example I give is Trump. A lot of people who now, you know, they um, their their perspective of politics is they view it through the lens of pro-Trump versus anti-Trump. And Trump ain't even in an office anymore. And so now they're not talking about the policies and things of that nature. They're just talking about Trump. And what happens is once you get caught up in the politics of personality, you can get dragged around by your ear. Look at our foreign policy, our foreign policy. We don't there's no such thing as uh, another country. There's Assad, there's Putin, there's Maduro. We name the name of the leader of the country and we never talk about the country itself. And when it comes to here, we talk about Trump versus Biden. We don't talk about the policies behind these things. Trump and Biden didn't come into American politics or into American culture, whether you like either one of them or don't. They came out of it. They were they were produced and created by American politics and, Mer- and American culture. And so when we and, and and I don't think it's an accident. I think our media has done it. And it and what happens is now we can vote based on the person and um, do we like them? Do we know them? And, what, and once you're talking about people rather than policy, whoever's no, um, name and picture is better known is going to win every time. And, and when you start talking policy, the people won't even hear you. I agree a thousand percent. That's uh, definitely been a big part of uh, campaigning when Jen ran for Congress, um, especially on the Democratic side. It's not the same on the Republican side. The Republican side cares a hell of a lot more about policy. On the Democratic side, of the liberal side especially, they have to like you first. If they like you. They care about their feelings and they're not as concerned with actually getting things accomplished. If they like you. Well, one of the things that happens is this, and I think this is important when we talk about left and right now, and this is exactly what you're talking about. Most people don't even have a clue what it was, what it means. It's like, do you agree with me on social issues? 
right? Whether it's gay rights or abortion or something like that, that's left and right. There's a social issue that you take the right positions on social issues. Left and right came from the French parliament, the people who literally sat on the left in the French parliament in like the 1700s were the people who tended to support the working class and the poor and they wanted change, revolutionary change, things of that nature. The people who literally sat on the right were the ones that supported the monarch and the status quo, et cetera. So now you, you, we, when, when I look at policies, I'm like, okay, is that a policy that's gonna help the masses and the working, the working class, the working poor and the poor, or is it gonna help the few who already have it in the noble class. That's how I determine left and right. But so many people in America now, it's like you take a, there's a position that has to do with, you know, some name, Tucker Carlson or whoever, Nancy Pelosi or something like that, right? And they'll hear a talking point that's not even relevant to politics. And they'll say, you're a right winger or a left winger because you agree with that person on that particular policy. And there's not even an interpretation of what they're seeing that would be relevant to the status quo, the ruling elite, or the working class and the working poor. And now we have people who oppose um, uh, uh, um, organized labor, who are super pro-corporate, and they're calling themselves the left. And people yeah. all think, yeah, that guy's on the left. I'm like, but he hates work organized labor. What, what are you talking about? But that's America. But it's about the person and every cultural issues and everything but the basic of the left and right. Yeah, they're very into, it's very tribalist. I feel like yes. it's color war. It's just about teams. It's about having an enemy. You need a bad guy. Like what you were saying about, it's Putin. It's Maduro. You know, they, they like to put a face to a bad guy. You need a boogeyman. They need to keep us punching in all the wrong directions. And that's, that's the whole goal. Because if we were actually talking about what the groups really are, it's the people at the top and then it's the rest of us. Those are really the only two groups that exist and they keep us all just fighting amongst ourselves like little peons. You know, and based on what you said, really, there's only one group and that is like the 99% because yeah. the rest of them, you know, they are actually, you know, the oligarchical class. There's always, you know, some level of um, uh, 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 um, disputing and fighting factions of the ruling elite. You know, you've got you've got an, an example. A lot of people don't realize this. Okay, you got people right now. You got got one group that want to go with war with the war with Russia. The other want war with China. Why is it the industrialists, the industrial economics uh, 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 oligarchs, look at China? Oh no, that's a huge industry, and that's you know there's a lot of money there, and that's going to um, challenge my industrial power. We got to go to war with them. But you got the commodities people, the oil people, the energy people. Whoa, Russia's got a bunch of commodities. We got to go to war and control that. And like we're told, it's about the good guys and the bad guys and democracy and authoritarianism. And when you get down to it, it has to do with dueling factions in the ruling elite, none of which is going to help us. They were the ones that sent their jobs to China in the first place. And now they're like, hey, we're mad at China. We're like, no, we're mad at you. <laughs> yeah. I always think I've said this to people before and, and they look at me like I'm crazy, but I don't care whether my oligarchs are American, Chinese or Russian. Doesn't matter to me. Like, that's just pretend borders that they're using to play like corporate stratego and just take resources from different countries. It's really, it's it's sort of, it's like the world wrestling. Like we always say, it's like this mock, it's theater. 
it's political theater. It's just a whole bunch of different rich people of different nationalities fighting over resources and making money off the military industrial complex. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's something positive now. I mean, you gotta, you gotta stay positive to me. And that is I've heard it said hard times are fighting times. And one of the things that we're seeing now is it's getting so blatantly obvious that the, this tiny group of oligarchs is, oppressing the rest of us, that you see what's happening with some unions starting to fire up again, with some union movement starting to fire up again, with the poor people's campaign starting to fire up again, with some things starting to fire up. So they pushed it so far, you know, I mean, hey, we wanted things to be better, but they pushed it so far, I think, now that they're slowly starting to wake up some kind of... um Good old fashioned. I don't know what the term populist. You can call it whatever you want. But a working class movements are starting to wake up. I think the next um, severe recession, which is very close at hand, will really um, serve to push more and more and more people to start getting um, active um, on behalf of the poor and the working poor and the working class, mainly because these people are a lot of people who are accustomed to being in the upper class and the upper middle class, you know, et cetera, very, very comfortable, aren't comfortable anymore. And, you know, so I, I, I think there's a positive way. There's, there's positive things to look at. We're speaking with Garland Nixon. Um, obviously, uh, we are tremendous supporters of Chris Smalls. I think he's one of the truly amazing leaders of our time. And what he was able to accomplish by unionizing the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, I think has really been a touch, uh, a touch off point. Um, a Apple warehouse just unionized. And we're seeing Starbucks, literally every time Howard Schultz utters a, a spoken word, there is another Starbucks that becomes a union unionized Starbucks, which is great. So Howard, keep, you know, running your mouth. Really appreciate it. Uh, there is something to be said for the political puritanism that exists. I personally believe it's part of, uh, it's, it's a CIA, a CIA uh, psyop in many ways. Uh, we see this need to constantly talk about, for example, how terrible Tucker Carlson is, yet Tucker Carlson not only had Chris Smalls on his show and gave him a fair, fair opportunity to speak, but at the end, even though he specifically said, I'm not one who supports unions, but I can see why at this time in history, we should have a stronger labor movement. And I'm like, okay, if we disagree on a dozen other things, that's fine. If we can agree on this, that's a pretty big deal as far as I'm concerned. Your thoughts? Uh, you know, I think what you said is important. Very, very important because <clears throat> that's another problem that we have. And that is um, we've been taught to dismiss people and therefore we can't listen to anything that they say, whether it's Tucker Carlson or Garland Nixon or whoever. Right. And, you know, I forgot how Abe Lincoln said, put it, but Abe Lincoln had a, I wish I had the exact phrase, but it had to do with basically if um, someone, if I agree with someone on politics, we can work on that together. And then once we disagree, we can go our separate ways. And I think we are in a getting to be in an economic and political situation where we don't have the luxury of being, of, of remaining in our comfortable tribes anymore, where we have to find any way to get people who will, um, 
discuss the important issues that need to be discussed, that we'll listen. And we, we can, you know, we can't just summarily dismiss Tucker Carlson or anyone um, because we met. Look, I, I, I've been on Tucker Carlson show several times. I've met him. He seemed like a nice guy. I disagree with him, you know, on some, you know, very significant issues. But you know what? If he'll bring on somebody who will say something let's not have a nuclear war. <laughs> Great. You know, I think it's a sad state of affairs. If you look at the numbers, Tucker Carlson now has like more Democrats watching him. Have you seen those, any of those numbers uh -huh. than like anybody on CNN or MSNBC? And it's, <laughs> it's not to me, it's not that I, hey, Tucker Carlson's wonderful. It's that there should be somewhere where at least the center or the left or the center left has some expression in the media. And now it's, a um, the corporatists, you know, whatever you want to call them, neoliberals, I don't care what the terms are, have like completely absorbed the CNNs and MSNBCs of the world so much that someone who has a fairly progressive perspective, they just like hate their guts and won't allow them on. And everybody's it's like morning Joe 24 hours a day. Yeah. People like to be in an echo chamber. That's that's the thing that is fascinating to me. I've gotten so much crap for shows I've gone on, guests I've had on, if it's not people that agree with them all the time, then they don't even think we should platform them. We shouldn't even talk to those people. And this is why we can't get anything done. Because if you're only talking in your echo chamber and you're not bringing in bigger people, to like bringing in more people to build a bigger coalition, then you're just sort of circling a drain. So I think it's so important. And, and I don't have this goal of converting righties to the left. They can be whatever they are. If there's things that we can work on, let's work on those things. My goal isn't to make them be like me. My goal is to work with people where we agree. <laughs> like that's the thing. And a lot of people on the left are very sanctimonious about it. Um, and, and we see that not just in like somebody like Hillary Clinton calling them deplorables, but there is this elitist mentality on the left that's very sanctimonious. And I think it turns a lot of people off. And I think that's how they end up finding people like Tucker Carlson and people that are uh, that's what pushing them to the right. Oh, yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. Uh, and what happens is you get your group gets smaller and smaller. You know, my background was in law enforcement. And I remember when I used to teach in the I ran a police academy when I and I used to tell officers, I'd say, look, let me tell you how it starts. It starts like this. We're the good guys and the citizens out there. They're all we can't trust them. They're the bad guys. I said, then it turns to, yeah, our department is good. But the next department over there, I don't trust them. Then it becomes, you know, our shift, we're great. But the guys on the other shift, I'm not so sure about. And after a while, it becomes, yeah, me, you know, uh, you know, me and my partner, we're good. But the other people in this, in, in, our, you know, in our district, until it's like, you know, I'm not so sure about my partner anymore. I don't trust him. Your groups just get smaller. And if you notice, that's what's happening. The groups are getting smaller and smaller and more devout, dogmatic, true believers in the smaller groups. And now you have this giant group of people out here that aren't in the policy, don't know it, don't know which way to go. And they're just like easily led into something that's going to bring about their own economic demise. Often. Yes. People vote against their own self-interest all the time, all the time. It's just, it's, I feel like sometimes I'm watching a train wreck in slow motion. I mean, we're watching the Democrats in Florida actually think that they're running a legitimate gubernatorial race. And they're, they, you know, it's like they've already lost and they're still, they, they have, they're just clueless.
Well, when you have the head of the Democratic Party who was put there by none other than Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Michael Bloomberg, who was a Republican mayor of Miami, uh, basically come out Miami. today. What, what was that? You said Miami. Uh, yeah. Bloomberg was uh, New York. No, no, no. I'm talking about Manny Diaz. Right. Oh, oh, oh. I'm thinking about Bloomberg. Okay. Yeah. So when, so when Manny Diaz comes out today and basically does the typical, let me show you how much more to the right the Democrats can be than the GOP in the state of Florida, you basically have Manny Diaz doing an even more hawkish response to President Petro winning the presidential election in Colombia than even Ron DeSantis. At least Ron DeSantis didn't say the election was rigged. <laughs> His response is pretty terrible himself. But the idea that the, the head of the Florida Democratic Party is going to play right into that same nonsense about anything. And we got to stop calling it left. There's got to be just this. This is a work. This is a president for workers. And the second that happens, you're going to see this reaction. I'm just waiting until they declare that the election was rigged or Petro is doing something really terrible and we have to have regime change in Colombia. So from my perspective, this really gets back to the heart of the conversation, which is anything to crush labor. And if this president, who is not that far from the United States, who's going to have a very big bullseye on him now, and people are going to see living wage, universal health care, protecting maybe the Amazon, who the hell knows, uh, probably going to do a hell of a lot better job than we do here. And I think this victory, as I'm sure you would agree, Jen, is tremendously important. We're seeing it throughout Latin and South America. And they need to do whatever they can to try to squash it, because the more this idea that the working class has a lot more power than they actually believe they do, is the more that people are going to become galvanized. At least that's what I think. How do you see it? I agree. See, the U.S. is in a trouble right now because when you say the United States, what are you talking about? There is a um, a ruling elite class that doesn't represent us, and they're the ones that are kind of running things right now. So their perspective is one of pure power. We've got to keep power. We've got to maintain power. But there are a lot of countries, as is natural, there are other countries that are rising up, becoming po economically powerful, military powerful, militarily powerful, et cetera. There are a lot of countries that sh simply want independence and sovereignty. Having traveled in South America, I have talked to people in South America, into the mountains and the hills and what have you. Basically, what the people in South America is, want is sovereignty. They want to choose their own path. And the U.S. has been for many for centuries, God knows, has been trying to stop them from doing that so that we can access their resources and bring it here and and, um, you know, live live well off of their resources. And they suffer. And time's running out on us. The people in South America are able or now more able to turn social movements into political movements. If you see what happened in Bolivia with uh, with uh, Evo Morales and that, yeah. you know, on and on. So they've learned how to really turn social movements into political movements, how to get out and vote. And they're basically kind of running us running the old right wing intelligence community that overthrew governments and inserted like maniacal 
Pinochet-style dictators in South America, they're learning how to overcome that and chart their own course. And meanwhile, the U.S. is like, oh, no, we can't have that. Oh, wait a minute. Russia's getting bigger. Oh, no, China's getting bigger. Oh, no. You know, and we're looking all over the place trying to control everything and um, we're not able to do it. And but, you know, know what I think the big thing that's hurting America and this is what happens um, that the people, the the elite ruling class. And this is what uh, eventually happens with empires. And that is internal uprising. It gets to the point where the people in the empire say we are being neglected. We don't we can't get the basics anymore. And the people who run this thing are spending all the money out on the fringes trying to control this country and that leader and push back this this, you know, just control everybody all over the place. And there's nothing left for the people. Uh, Let me say something real quick. I I ran through this um, on my I have a show on KPFK in L.A. And today I went over numbers and it was like. $857 billion for the 2023 war budget. 40 just went to, well, allegedly Ukraine, but of course Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. 40 billion. Before that was 13.6 billion. There was another 27.4 billion for some missile, island chain missile complex to encircle China, right? I mean, I kept going on and on. Uh, uh, 85 billion another 85 billion that's for the CIA and military intelligence right and so i kept and then when when i got finished with the numbers it was 1 billion 275 trillion dollars almost 1.3 trillion dollars and then i went to some other numbers it would cost 1.5 billion dollars to fix the water problem in flint michigan $11 billion for school lunches that ends January 30th. Now we can't afford lunches for kids anymore. $11 billion. You know, and I went over some $20 billion to end homelessness. And I'm like, so what are we looking at? You know, we're looking at less than right around $30 billion to fix all this stuff. No money for it. But we've got one point. Two seven five trillion or whatever it is for all of these other things that do nothing to help us. That we're buying F thirty fives at like one hundred and twenty million each that don't even fly. And maybe it's good they don't because we'd bomb somebody with them if they did. Speaking with Garland Nixon, um, I think it's very important that we get into a subject that is very relevant. Um, we have been very adamant. Uh, you know, we are progressive, but uh, I personally have a very hard libertarian lean, especially when it comes to our uh, spending, especially with the military. Um, the fact that Bernie and the squad rubber stamped the $40 billion in additional aid, aid to Ukraine without even seeing what's in the bill, we all know, again, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, we know who's getting this money. Will some of it maybe trickle towards aid? Yeah, maybe 5% if you're lucky. But this is a war machine. And I I just don't understand how, on the one hand, these are not representatives who are controlled by corporate special interests and especially the military-industrial complex, yet they go right along with it. They get outflanked every time by Rand Paul and Mike Lee, who on many issues are as to the right as you can get in the U.S. Senate. Yet for some reason, when it comes to civil liberties and war spending, they are always in the right place at the right time. And then, of course, I would think that the American public has been hoodwinked enough times where they can kind of see this happening and understand why it's happening. 
And yet they fall into the trap every single time. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and it's like this. At some point, you got to say it's not a trap that they're falling into. <laughs> you know what I mean? At some point, you got to say, look, these people aren't stupid. And what happens, I think, is having kind of worked around Capitol Hill, et cetera, they get in a bubble, number one. And number two, they become part of that machine. And let me tell you, it's a nice life. You got black cars taking you everywhere. You got people kissing your feet all day long. You've got an entourage wandering around and it becomes this really nice life. And all you got to do is kind of like in the life we say certain things and then you become part of the tribe. And it's like, okay, we're going to have our caucus meeting. We're all voting for this because it's going to do that. And it becomes, you know, okay, we've all got to vote for this Ukraine money, blah, 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 blah. And even the leadership knows, you know, some of our people may be a little naive and we can use that against them. And we'll just tell them we got to do this because it's good and they won't look into it. You know, I looked through that and it was, when you start looking through that Ukraine money, it's like, 54 billion, 54 million, I think, for the CDC. And you're like, the CDC? And then it was like another one was 400 and some million for research and development for the Pentagon. Well, you know, that's going right into the hands of, you know, some contractors or whatever. But when you look at that, like you said, when you looked at that 40 billion, there was just chunks all over the place, just given to whoever the hell they wanted. You know, I mean, like one of them was for human trafficking, drug, DEA, drugs. I mean, just it was just a big 40 billion dollar handout to whoever they wanted to give money to. It was it's ridiculous. But I think um, it, it, you know, it's like what we were talking about. You, you, you get this tribe, you get this club and everybody in the tribe is going to vote the same way and believe, and you play off the other side. Yes, we got to pass this 40 billion for Ukraine. You know, the Republicans don't want to get it through. Oh my God, the Republicans don't want to get it through. Well, then we've got to get it through if for no other reason than because the bad guys don't want to get it through. And that's where we are now. And so mm-hmm. what you become is people who come in, um, supposedly to change Washington and you know the story and Washington changes them and they just become a part now unfortunately I mean I'd like to be a yay the squad and yay Bernie oh I was the biggest Bernie fan in the world you know that's like a lot of things for me changed in 2016 because I was Bernie 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 and then when I saw that he got screwed I got really pissed because I'm like here's a guy that I like and he's saying things that are in the best interest of people and the whole system comes down on him to stop him and it infuriated me And um, but what we end up now is a system that's absorbed these people in a way that. You know, they're just part of the machine, they're just another spoke in the wheel. Yeah, we see that a lot of time. We see that in political circles, like the whole consultant class. And it's just a matter of campaigning the campaign and everybody just comes to feed at the trough. And it's just basically a whole bunch of people managing money between themselves and their friends. The insider trading trading issue is out of, out of control with them. And, and the fact that they're maybe going to kind of sort of address it as if it's so unreasonable for us to not want our Congress people like double dipping and insider trading. And, and it's just so common and blatant. Like the corruption isn't even, it's just blatant. It, it, it's bizarre to me. Like we're watching it in real time. It's not even a secret. 
Yeah. And I mean, when you understand DC, you know, now if you want to be a chairman of a committee or chairperson of a committee now, right, you have to raise like a half a million or a million. Like if there's three or four people in both parties, if there's on Capitol Hill, let's say they're choosing between the three of us to be the chair of the whatever, the whatever committee, right? All of us have to show that we can, like if they say it's a half a million, we all got to show that we can raise a half million for the part. If I can raise a half million and he can raise a half million and you can't, you're out of the running. And now that we we shows both shown that we could raise a half million, they'll choose between the two of us or a million or whatever it is. So you really have to like if you can't bring in a certain amount of money, you are not in consideration. So really, you're buying your way into committee chairmanship. Now, how do you raise that half million? You're not going to raise it getting 25 cents standing on a corner with a cup. You're going to get that half million by going to Lockheed Martin and blah, 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 and going to these bundlers. And in fact, if you are in line to be a committee chairman, you will get approached. Oh, hey there. Well, so Jen, you're thinking about, I understand you're in line to be a committee chairman. Yeah. You know, you got to raise a half million. I can put some bundlers together and I think we can get that done. Now I'm going to come back to you later. We might have a bill every now and then. We might need you to rubber stamp, but we'll get you the amount of money that you need to make you eligible. Well, that's pure corruption. You're buying your way into the government. That's banana republic style stuff. And we're like yeah. running around like our government's prist, uh, pristine democracy. Yeah. We're anything but. And even if somebody like AOC has the ability to raise half a million without taking corporate money, I, I, I feel bad for people who think that she's not in this for a career. It's painfully clear that she is. Uh, doesn't mean that she won't do good things. Uh, but you have to, you know, you have to recognize that there really aren't that many good people that are out there. That's why Bernie was such an anomaly. You know, he'd been at it for so long and he never succumbed to the system. And when you have 535 federally elected representatives and basically 95 to 97 percent of them are completely bought by the machine. That's why when everyone's like, oh, if only we didn't have mansion and cinema, I'm like, there will be somebody else next time. There will always be an excuse, just like there was Joe Lieberman. Good there point. will always be somebody who will make sure that anything that is going to benefit the working class exponentially in this country, it will be stopped. Hell, it could be the parliamentarian. The par- Apparently, the parliamentarian can stop everything from happening. You know, the president's not strong enough to overcome the parliamentarian. Come yeah, on. Well, yeah, Lieberman, I mean, uh, excuse me, uh, Manchin and Cinema. to me, what I said about them was this. If you don't have any Republicans, you got to make some. So when it got to the point <laughs> where they're like, hey, we've got the Senate and we're all Democrats. We don't have any Republicans to uh, to, uh, you know, to, to stop us from getting these bills through. How are we going to stop it? Well, we don't have any Republicans. We'll have to do with what we got. You and you. Yeah, you're the official Republican from now on. All right. Thanks. Not a problem. They were the stalking horse caucus. And I try to explain to people that. For the people who are on the outside, you really do not understand what it means to be a federally elected representative, what it means to have eight assistants, what it means to have a gold-plated health care plan, what it means to get fringe benefits and invitations to parties and weekend getaways in places all over the world, excuses to going to conferences that have nothing to do with your governing abilities. It is a, and it's an intoxicating world, and it is. It's like making the deal with the devil. You know, they'll tell you that it isn't good and that you're going to regret it if you do it. But, man, it's really tempting. 
And the second they want to offer you that stock tip that could put another hundred, $200,000 in your portfolio, it's very hard to say no. And I think that that was always Bernie's greatest appeal is because he does say no, but so few others do. And when you're fighting that type of a fight, it makes it very difficult to convince people that anything is possible. Everyone wonders, when is that breaking point going to come? I think a lot of people are mentally broken and they don't know how to fight. Do you see it that way? Yeah, yeah. You know, here's the thing about Bernie, and that is because I got mixed emotions. I was the biggest Bernie fan in the world. But there are some questions that have to be asked about Bernie. There are questions that, that, that just ask themselves. And that is, you know, the reality is, and I'm not saying this to disparage Bernie. I'm not saying he's the most wonderful person. And whether to me, it isn't about Bernie being a good guy or a bad guy. It's the dynamic, the political dynamics. So to some extent, you know, Bernie will... Um, work with like the most nefarious neoliberal pro-war, pro-corporate, you know, puppets on um, on uh, uh, on Capitol Hill. And then he'll like run against them and say everything they're doing is bad and all the right stuff. Right. And I'm like, I'm down with that, Bernie. Man, I love that, Bernie. And then when they rob him, he'll come back and say, now we've got to support this person. And I mean, I understand to some extent. Okay, Bernie, you remember the party and you feel like the other side is worse or whatever. I understand what he's coming from. But it's like to me, I'm like, man, these people are so bad. And they just like screw, you know, like when Bill Clinton did NAFTA and then Bernie comes right back in 96 and like, we got to get Bernie. And and I, I mean, I understand that Dole was there and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, do you have a a breaking point? You know what I mean? Do you have what's the word I'm looking for? A deal breaker. Where you say, you know what, uh, guys, I can work with you, but that's a deal breaker. And I had never seen a deal breaker with Bernie where he just says, oh, screw this, man. This is just is too far. And he's I'm going to call him out on it. He'll just kind of be quiet and support him anyway. And and I'm not I just think that's a reality that some people get infuriated over Bernie about. I just try to understand it. We when talk at, about that a lot. Yeah. When you're at the end of your political career. You know, what else is there other than to take your shot? And I mean, like a real shot and basically say, you know, I'm not going along with this anymore. Um, I don't know why so many. I mean, listen, some people, if they really want in on this, have to be willing to be a martyr. And as difficult as it is to say that. But if you're not willing to die for the cause, then you're not really fighting for the cause, because at some point you recognize that what you do is killing millions of innocent people all over the world. We are not actively trying to change the way that we run our energy grid in this country because big oil firmly runs our government. We're seeing that right now. Um, Could you even imagine if gas prices were at five, six dollars a gallon, if Trump was in the White House and let it last more than a couple of weeks? It would be total anarchy in this country. But because Biden is there and he is the ultimate establishment insider president who doesn't even have an independent thought in his brain, who does exactly what Antony Blinken tells him to do. They are very good at allowing the media to not cover this at all. The idea that we'll mention we have high high gas prices and it's not just gas, it's everything. Yeah. You can't buy an avocado for less than, I don't know, three dollars each. I mean, yeah, I like my avocado toast. I'll admit that. But, you know, all jokes aside, this is a serious effing time that we're living in right now. And 
it is getting violent. And it's getting violent because the powers that be do not care. They are willing to sacrifice millions, if not billions of people in order to maintain the system that has made them so rich and powerful. 11 million people displaced in India and Bangladesh as a result of sea level rise. That story will be on the news for five seconds and it's gone. And that's the tragedy of it all. So we have serious problems right now and trying to form this coalition that gets past all the BS, because that's what most of the stuff that you see on social media all day long is all about. It's not relevant. And yet here we are talking about the real issues. How do we galvanize millions of people? Is it going to take another person running for president that is outside of the system? We know a couple of potentials that may run in the Democratic primary. We had Jesse Ventura on the podcast last week. He is firmly interested in running if he can get on the ballot, particularly with the forward party. What do you think it's going to take? Because obviously the labor movement growing is huge, but it's not going to be enough. It's going to take more than that. Well, I think that it's not what we do. You know, I my, I had a mentor for years. Paul Robeson Jr. was, was my mentor. And we I learned a lot about politics from him. But one of the things that he always said was, look, change is not about always what you do. It's about timing that like you work on what you're working on and you work on it and work on it and work on it. And then times change wherein what you're working on there's an opening for it. You know what I mean? And so like there have been a lot of people working on, you know, labor and organized labor, but there was no opportunity. And things happened now recently with COVID and all that opened a window so that people who were working on organized labor should could start getting some making some headway. I think that the what we're talking about when we talk about the violence that's going on in our society and the mass shootings and all this craziness. Right. That's instability. And I think the instability that we're, go- we're going to be experiencing, you know, economic and political instability, I think that's what's going to. And I mean, I'm not saying I want instability. It has nothing to do with what I want. It's going to be there whether I don't wa- I want stability, as we all do. But I don't think we're going to get that for a while. But that's going to create an opportunity for people to come together, for people to make some changes. I think we're going to see some um, over the next you know, in November in 2024, I think there's going to be some opportunities for maybe some third party people, maybe some people in the regular, you know, the two parties that are there that are outside of the norm. Something there, I think there will be some opportunities because of the level of instability. People will be so, so angry and fear and, and, and furious and um, they'll be looking for something different and change. So I think the opportunity is going to come through difficult times. Think about, yeah, I, I mean, think I, about the, 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 just real quick, think about uh, the whole Roosevelt and the New Deal. What brought that there? You know what I mean? Hard times, hard times created an opportunity where everybody in the country surged to the left. And they're like, whoa, we want the government. It went from the, 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 the like what, three right wing laissez faire Republican presidents in a row and everything crashed, and then FDR comes in, and people were pretty clear. We want you to go in the opposite direction, and he had to because things were falling apart, and I think we could be looking at that kind of thing. Now, of course, decades and decades after that, the, the right was, well, I say the right, the the powerful people, the you know, the oligarchs were working, and the powerful industrials were working to undo that, the corporatists, but I think we're going to have an opportunity for it again. Um, based on what's coming over the next you know, year or two. 
Yeah, I thought for a long time it's going to get a lot. It's going to get worse and it's going to get more violent and people are more desperate. And there's like it's not it's weird to me that people can look and say, "Okay, well, we're like the biggest weapons manufacturer in the world. Like that's our claim to fame is our military industrial complex. We produce all these weapons. Right. So to me, it's completely reasonable then to say, well, then you have to expect violence at home. You you cannot have like an imperialist, violent society and then be surprised when we have all these mass shootings. Um, it's just to me, it's it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I think people are still not looking in the in the proper location for solutions. They're still spinning their wheels for like quick fixes, band-aids, policies that that make them feel better, like they're doing something. But they're still not ready to really. We haven't hit rock bottom yet. Yeah, and I and I think you brought up a great point, Garland. And I wouldn't even so, say so much that FDR was um, a product of just you know the the very laissez-faire uh, policies of the Roaring Twenties, with you know obviously Harding, Coolidge, and, and Hoover. But I think honestly, it really stems from the fact that the most bold president we ever had period was Teddy Roosevelt. And the fact that he was willing to do what he did in 1912 by running in a third party in the bull moose party, which ended up becoming even more powerful than the GOP. And as it turns out, if he was, this is the other thing that people don't realize about Teddy and is really the difference between him and Bernie. Teddy was screwed out of the nomination in 2012 by the GOP. He ran in the GOP primary. He got more pledged delegates than President Taft got, and they still gave the nomination to Taft. And everyone knows that Bernie was cheated out of the nomination in 2016. We don't know fully what happened in 2020. We'll let that be. But there is no question there was more than enough evidence that Bernie was cheated in 2016. And if he had decided, okay, if that's how you want to play it, watch what I do next. Right. And if he had done it the way that Teddy had done it, it would have it would have moved the country in a direction where they would have demanded something. But unfortunately, we haven't gotten that something yet. And that next person is either going to be an extreme in terms of the laissez-faire politics which I believe is going to be Ron DeSantis. He is tracking to be the next president of the United States. I agree. And ultimately, after him, if it isn't going to be in 24, then I'm looking at 28, depending on what we do over the next six years within the movement, that that opportunity will come. And I still think you need to have a true progressive challenger right now in 24 to set that precedent, to build that foundation. And the one thing we do in non-corporate progressive politics or that we do not do and should be doing is following the GOP model, which is the bottom up approach. I was just at the New Hampshire Democratic Party convention. The state party gives no money to this, basically no money. You want to say they give a little pinch? They give no money to their state candidates. All the money goes to the federal candidates because Maggie Hassan is a U.S. senator and she's got a very competitive primary. Same with Congressional Representative Chris Pappas. You know what? There is a reason why the Democrats are inept. They have no foundation. And if you think it's that that's not good in New Hampshire, come to Florida. You can really see what bad looks like. Well, I'll put it differently, though. It's not that they're inept. They're actually really, really good at what they do. 
which is maintain power. So, you know, from the from from the perspective of what we may want them to do or that where we may want a democracy, they may present as in it. You know, and, it, and in, in a way it benefits them for us to look at them because inept implies that there is not the that, that they don't have mens rea, you know, criminal intent. Yes. Right. But there is they have the intent there. And if you would just say, you know, and I understand because when you see the absurdities, you're like, what kind of an idiot would do that? But in reality, this idiot just keeps winning. And keeping all their, they came up with the, what's that blue, whatever they came up with that the whole, I think, is it Meeks that runs it? This, um, that the uh, whole idea of this thing and all the money into it is to keep, um, people who are, uh, incumbents in. They have, I mean, a party that says we're putting all this money together to keep incumbents in. And that's why everybody running the party is like 95 years old. And th- there's no option for any really youth or whatever to come in unless it's, you know, some kind of an anomaly. And they've created this literally old boys club because it's mostly old and mostly boys. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they've created this old club of people and um, it's they've completely shunned democracy. And and I, I really believe this, you know, if we are running a business, right, and we're doing all kinds of crooked stuff and we're, you know, not paying our taxes and doing all kinds of terrible crooked things and filling our pockets, we can't and we need a new CEO. We can't bring in an honest CEO because an honest CEO is going to look at the books and say, hey, you guys are, you know, we they may turn us in. Right. I think the the the, the um, uh, Democratic Party has gotten so corrupt, they couldn't have like a Bernie in charge. Because if Bernie got in charge and he started looking at the books and looking at everything, what the hell are we doing here? Not that he would act, but I'm just saying a person who wasn't corrupt, who got in charge, would immediate look at, look, immediately look at what they were doing and be aghast at what they found. And I think they've kind of gotten themselves into a corner of corruption where how did they get out of that? I don't know. Well, let's ask him. Let's see what he has to say. Uh oh. <laughs> there we well, go. Look, no, look, I my good friend Joe, and he's been a good friend for many years. I don't have a lot of friends on the hill, so of course I have to get along with him. But look, if I saw the books, I'm sure I'd be very disappointed. But right now, what's most important is that we get out there and we help as many people as possible. Jen, you understand. We are not getting anywhere. There is no end in sight. But we have to continue building the labor movement. The labor movement grows. The American people will definitely get on board. And I have to say, I am very happy that President Petro won in Colombia. That is a wonderful thing. Hopefully we get more candidates like that here in America that will run for office because I am getting old and I cannot do this again. That's all I have to say. <laughs> so that's for you. Yeah, That's the first uh, Bernie imitation that I ever saw where the word unacceptable wasn't used. <laughs> mm. But it was good. That was a good. That was good. That was good. That's very, very Bernie-esque. But yeah, you know, so I think um, we're in a difficult position right now and it's going to get worse. And that's sadly, that's the way out. You know, if we all make it through this somehow and we don't all get nuked or something crazy, which you got to you got to say, okay, look, I'm putting that out of my mind. There's certain things we can't control. But if we're able to um, get ourselves together, I I truly believe that. Sorry about that. I truly believe that one of the things we have to address, I truly believe this, is our foreign policy. That's like all of our money is going to 
overseas, all of it, but it's not going overseas. It's now it's this corrupt machine that they have a million ways of putting money into this corrupt machine from all angles. And we have to really figure out, you know, we have to get people in power who are going to question it. We have to get people in power who are going to look at the numbers who are going to, we have to get enough people in. Um, I put it like this. It would be great if we could get three people in the Senate. That's all it would take because they're usually only one or two people apart who would say, no, I'm not going, we're not going to do it. We're going to do this. You know, it would only take like two or three people in the Senate to like block stuff completely and force Oh, like $50 billion for, you know, a couple of fighter planes or something into the um, social safety net. I think that's an excellent point. And like Jen, as you always say, we do not have an anti-war movement in this country at all. And we need an anti-military industrial complex movement. That's really what we need. I think it's there for the taking, but you really need somebody who I think is going to have to run for president in particular, that's going to have to galvanize millions of people in order to really start taking it over. And again, if the Bernie movement continues, the next incarnation has to be one that really focuses on local politics. In terms of these federally elected officials, you're going to get maybe one or two of them per election cycle that are not part of the corporate bill. There are candidates that can run for city council, state house, county commission, the amount of money that you need to spend in order to win those elections could be, in some cases, $20,000, $30,000. You want to win a congressional seat, you're talking at least $2 million. So this is a, it is a serious mindset change that I think needs to happen. But I do think that the core issues that we're fighting on are the issues that the majority of Americans agree on. If we're not just focused on LGBTQ Second Amendment, abortion, and we're focused on living wage, universal health care, clean energy grid, ending the wars and our military spending the way that it is. If we focused on that, overwhelmingly, the country agrees as a unit on these things. And I think the more we do that, the closer we are going to get to where we need to go. So with that said, Garland, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Please plug whatever you want to plug where people can find you, listen to your work. Anything you like to say, the floor is yours. Oh, just um, I've got my YouTube show. I'm also on Rockfin, um, at Garland Nixon on Twitter. And uh, that's pretty much it. I'm on, you know, the Facebook and stuff like that. But, you know, yeah. I'm half, to the t- half the time, I spend more time suspended from my Facebook channel than I actually spend, you know, able to do anything on it. Well, if you ever would like to have us on your podcast, please let We're us know. We're always appreciative of plugs. We're a struggling, small, but mighty channel. <laughs> do a good job, though. And you have obviously been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for your insight. Really learned a lot, particularly about how the money is spent in Ukraine. That meant a lot. And obviously appreciate your work. And hopefully we'll be seeing each other down the road. Thank you very much. Thanks, Garland. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was a great, great conversation. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah. uh, Well, I knew with someone like him, like literally you could talk to him about anything. Yeah. And I think particularly, uh, as it relates to what was going, what is going on in Ukraine, I thought was a very big deal because uh, there is a lot to be said about that stuff, and we really don't know a lot about it. Uh, but you know what? You don't really have to know because instinctively, you know that what they're selling is always BS. 
when it comes to the military industrial complex, you have to know that whatever we're being told is going to be so far from the truth. That's not to say, as we this is like the Clinton Foundation, for example. It goes without saying that was there some money that went to Haiti that benefited them? Yeah, I'm sure there was some, but like 95% of the money didn't go where it needed to go. And the same is true for how we spend our money with the military. It does not go where it needs to go. Thank you, fire breathing, Rob. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, Garland covers a variety of things. I've been watching him for a long time. Like he's really good and, and his show is good and his takes are good. And yeah. I, he has done a lot of coverage of Ukraine. So if, if you guys are wanting to see some good coverage on that, he's done some really good work on that. What do we have coming up, Peter? Well, on Wednesday, we're speaking with your, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but your, your water lady. That's who's coming on okay, Wednesday. You can't call her the water lady. Her name is Sarah Soshka. And she's a water lady. So we're going to be talking, guys, about the idea of municipal rainwater harvesting. So, yes, it's something that we might be sort of encouraged to do. Our state is supportive of people doing residential rainwater harvesting. But this is an idea of doing it at a municipal level to power things. And it, it, could, it could even account for up to 30 percent of our gray water usage, um, things like irrigation, things like that. And so. I just wanted to talk with somebody who really understands that and understands how we can possibly have that work and how much it can help us. And especially in Florida, people, we are going to have a water problem, which I know sounds ridiculous with the amount of rain we get, but we're going to have a serious fresh water problem. We already have it. Yeah. And now how we deal with it is going to be the key. Um. Did you see the clip of uh, Crystal Ball and Bill Maher? I saw a little bit of it. You know, it's not, I don't really follow that, but I saw a little bit of it. The biggest takeaway is the fact that Crystal brought up that there was a recession, a serious right. recession. They didn't even know there was a recession. And Bill Maher's like, there was no, there, you people, there was no recession. And I'm just thinking, well. Um, when you live in a $20 million mansion in the Hollywood Hills and you make this ungodly amount of money to be on this show and the only people you want on your show are people of your class is, is pretty much the, you know, the takeaway. Well, the reality is it wasn't much of a recession. And as Crystal said, it happened and then very quickly they got bailed out. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why nobody heard of it. It was, it came and went so fast. I think it was like March 30th of 20 and it lasted for like a couple of weeks. And then the fed came in and bailed everybody out. Brilliant. So there's a reason that elitist people on their little, you know, in their little bubble wouldn't know about that. And I don't know, maybe it's just age, but bill has become much more of an austerity hawk. And he was constantly complaining about how working class people got a $1,400 and $600 stimulus check. Mm. I mean, are you going to complain about 
Tom Brady getting a million dollars in PPP loan money? Are you going to complain? Hey, Josh, are you going to complain about how all of these mega corporations were siphoning money away that they benefited immensely as a result of these so-called packages? I mean, Garland was just talking about $40 billion in aid to Ukraine. Uh, do you not understand how much pork gets thrown into these bills? That's our tax money that basically they decide, OK, this is what we're spending it on. Well, isn't that the reason? I mean, those bills are really the reason that they manufacture consent for war. Like that's that's the whole point. The whole point is to manufacture the consent so nobody questions aid money going to Ukraine when, in fact, it's going to the military industrial complex and the people in Ukraine are screwed. Like that's the thing. I mean, we're just so used to seeing this need for aid. I don't know. It's all just manufactured consent. There's no. And yes, I do think what's happening in Ukraine is horrible and that what Russia is doing is outrageous. But I think that the way that they spin it is just a way to manufacture like this consent for us to keep in putting money into our military industrial complex. Yeah. And of course, there's never an endless supply of where that money is going to come from. Um, that's really the issue of our time. Um, and when the only people who are speaking up and voting against it are far right libertarians, you've got a problem. You've got a serious problem. And th the thing that you have to admire about Rand Paul and Mike Lee, they don't give two F's about whether or not they're painted as Russian assets or any of that stuff. They're like, I'm not voting for this. This is this is criminal. Everyone knows it. And the money you're spending is wasteful spending of the highest order. It's not that they don't care. I'm sure they do. But at some point, you have to say, if you're going to sign a bill that's for the people of Ukraine, then do a bill for the people of Ukraine. But that's not how we do business in the United States. No. And that is what I think people are failing to understand. It doesn't look like we have anything scheduled past that. So I don't know what you have cooking. I don't know what you have you're working on. Well, the whole Washington crew, you, you say it like I'm responsible for everything. I guess I am. Um, so the whole Washington. Yeah, the person that sets the calendar. The whole Washington crew, uh, I believe, is really building momentum in the state of Washington. So we're going to schedule them to come back on uh, as early as next week. So we're going to do that. We'll see about some candidates uh, to bring on. We Tom might want to reach out to um, we might want to reach back out to John Shipton and see if we can schedule him. Yeah. OK, I could do that. Yeah, uh, I think. Uh, well, well, obviously, we're going to have Tom Hartman back on, but that's not going to be until September. Uh, Guys, if there's anybody, you know, that you think of that you would suggest, we actually got a recommendation um, for Lily Geismer. And I actually uploaded the book and I will forward it to you. Do you know who she is? Geismer? No. G-E-I-S-M-E-R. She is. A book, that's somebody who we could definitely reach out to. Okay. Yeah. And we will do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I come up with good suggestions. I have some good ideas. I'm smart. I smart. <laughs> SMRT. <laughs> I'm smart. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to go meet my friend and go have a lavender lemonade. That's my plan for this evening.
That sounds great. Well, do you want to, are you going to hop off? I mean, I guess I could hang for a few minutes, but. Well, what do you want to do? I mean, look, it's up to you, whatever you want to do. I mean, I, there's, you know, I'm walking distance to some good places. All right. Well, run along then. I'll sign us off. I'll, do you I'll, want to have a rant? Like, is that, do you have like a pontification or do you have something you want to get off? Carla, not only is it a pleasure to have you on our show, we're very grateful for you subscribing, but the image of your two beautiful baby doggies. Okay. We're such dog people here. Yeah. That's freaking awesome. Uh, so huge shout out to new subscriber, Carla Harrington. That is really awesome. Remember, as Bill Murray says, I don't trust any person who doesn't like dogs, but I trust any dog that doesn't like a person. Right. Fire breathing, Rob. Will Charlie team up with Nikki, Anna for Lieutenant? We, we've, we've kind of figured it would be um, Annette would basically be who he's going to team up with. Well, I that's not going to be possible because she's running for Congress now. Well, if she loses the primary, then yeah. That's the thing. Like it's all, everybody's just hedging their bets. They're all just put, they're keeping fires going all over the place to just figure out where they can land so that they could just hey, The person you really got to look out for is Alan Grayson. I mean, come on now. You know, he's. That's not even funny to me. I'm so disgusted with that whole thing. I can't even. And as far as why won't Charlie Chris come out as gay, he is a new fan. You know, that's something that I've always kind of been it's always kind of bothered me about him, but he just feels like such a chameleon in so many ways. And that's always been my sort of issue with him. And it really doesn't matter because neither he nor Nikki have a, a, a snowball's chance in hell of beating Ron DeSantis. Well, so it's ridiculous. Conversation. You, think he, you, you think, you think Charlie's gay? I don't know what he is or isn't. I know there's been speculation. I know that he switched like he goes wherever the wind blows, but yeah, I, I always have had a vibe from him that he's not being authentic. I've always had that vibe that he's not. Being I authentic. get that. I get that. A lot of people feel that way, but he's a nice man. I'm, yeah. And you know, here's the thing. If he's gay, I don't care. Like I, I couldn't care less. I just, I always get an uneasy feeling from people that I feel like aren't being real that they're not really who, like that they're a facade of who they are. And I always got that vibe from him. So that's my issue. By the way, do with sexual. And I, and I will say this, Peter Sorch, and he's a, uh, the Florida politics guy out in Tampa. If you're going to write a disparaging article about our South Florida Congresswoman, Sheila Sherfulis McCormick, at least make it honest, you know, don't make up stuff. Um, you don't have to like the fact that she spent a lot of, of her money to win a congressional seat, but to suggest that what she was doing was inauthentic or even illegal. Credit to Sheila for immediately responding through the Sun Sentinel, no less, and basically calling him out and saying, here's X, Y, and Z. You got anything else? Credit to a congresswoman who's willing to fight the good fight. But the truth is, and I only heard this, it's only a rumor that this guy's organization is being paid by Dale Holmes. Now, is that true? Don't know. Is it likely? Yeah, probably. Florida politics is dirty, ladies and gentlemen, and rudderless and um, kind of pointless. That's my opinion. How about yours, right. So then why are we even playing in this game? Why are we, why are, why are we dealing with these people? I don't like them. 
I'm having some problems. You just won't leave it alone. Well, no, I need to set it up better. And this was only the first run. And it's going to take me a few episodes to get it how I want it. And I wanted to do this when we had the guest, but that would have been kind of rude. So I did it like this. I have. It's always hard in a new place to get it set up. You got to just let me live, man. I'm trying my best. Thank you, Ricardo. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we try to spread the word about our channel as much as we can. We're um, small but mighty. That's what yeah. I say. I'll tell you what is helping our channel, and we give Alex Gilchrist, got to give a shout out to our guy. Credit for that. I do think that we are picking up uh, subscribers. And again, are we picking up patrons? I don't believe so. That doesn't mean that we can't and won't. But our TikTok channel is growing we're at almost 1,600 subscribers now, and it grows Ooh. really fast. So I had a, so I had a, a, a video a clip that um, I had done the other day regarding how the GOP is able to build an infrastructure that it doesn't matter who's at the top. It just matters that you're strong from bottom up, whereas the Democrats need that in order to be successful. And in the case of this video, that uh, this, this clip that we did, or that I should say Alex did for us. Uh, we have another one that now has, and this one about George Bush versus uh, Obama and Clinton has almost 68,000 views and almost a thousand likes. So we're doing pretty good. And I'm noticing a consistent stream of new subscribers to the podcast, which is great. Uh, you know what, Carla, if you're still here, how did you hear about us? How did you become a new subscriber? So I think that would also be interesting if people come on the channel and can share with us exactly how you heard about us. Yeah, um, that's an important point. We need to have yeah. like a thing like, where did you hear about us? Did you see the TikTok video and said, wow, I want to I, I join. I think that you guys have some good stuff because you sure as hell are not going to see us on any algorithm. That's for sure. No <laughs> one's recommending like our channel. Not with some of the stuff we've talked about. And not with some of the guests we've had. So yeah. that that's uh, that's kind of just par for the course. Um, so, yeah, uh, we would definitely like to get whatever feedback we can. Uh, and again, if you are so inclined, we are small but mighty. But patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as five dollars a month. You can become a patron of our channel, which allows us to do things that we do locally, such as Jen. Well, we give to community gardens. We make donations to non-corporate candidates. We help people where we can. We've, we've donated to a couple of nonpartisan local school board races, but we're sort of like a non-corporate mutual fund and we donate to local causes. That's a good one. I like that. A non-corporate mutual fund. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're really trying to do, but, um, yeah, every little bit helps, and it helps us be able to. I also do homeless care packs. I actually gave one out today. I'm up in North Carolina, and um, I keep them in the car. So I actually just give them out as I go along. But that's the kind of stuff we spend the money on that we get for this podcast. Well, a lot of people saying they found you as a result of you running for office, which was a big deal. Um, it isn't hopeless or futile to run for office, it just can't be the only thing. That's the mistake that a lot of people make. If you're going to do it, you have to run for office in a multitude of different ways. You could be running to build a community garden. You could be running to help non-corporate candidates. Um, you think channel. our channel was mentioned by Kyle? 
Wow. I don't know about that. I Well, Kyle definitely mentioned me when I was running. That I know. He did give our campaign a shout out, which I appreciated. But I haven't heard him mention. Has he mentioned us? That's cool if he did. Maybe he did. I mean, he. I, I would hope he would have messaged me or something to at least tell me, hey, by the way, I gave you a shout out on the show. But it, it might have would. come in passing. I mean, look, hey, if you yeah, if you yeah. heard us, about, you might have heard about us on um, Status Coup. I, you know, Jordan occasionally has, you know, given us. Well, a you were also on. You were also on Rising a couple of times. So that I've been, been on happened. Rising. A, yeah, I've been on Rising a couple of times. Um, Michael Knowles. I've been on Michael Knowles. The, the the thing the problem I have with going on Rising is just the format of their of their show. Like the people there are nice. Like I get I you know people can say what you want about Kim Iverson. I like him, um, but the problem with going on Rising is they'll tell you they want you to come on. You're coming on for a ten minute stint, like it's a ten minute you know exchange, <laughs> and you. Oh yeah, thanks, Dirtbag. Yeah, that was some recommendation. Some recommendation. That's the problem with the with going on rising. You don't know really what you're talking about until like right before you go on. It's not like they bring you on because you're an expert in something. They bring on guests and then tell you what they want to talk about. So it's just a little bit of a different format than yeah, we it's do. Sort of, sort of a corporatized format, but is it? Well, yeah, we do kind of bring people on to talk about what their specialty is, what they're experts on. And that's the purpose of bringing them on or authors of books. They're more just planned conversations with different people. I mean, it's just different format. Well, Jimmy Dore recommended me, Peter, look. So it is said, so it must be true. <laughs> the next president of the United States recommended him to this channel, Jen. Can you believe it? Oh, yeah. That's how it went. Yeah. No, you know what? We try to do some good stuff here. We'll work on some bringing in some good guests over the next couple of weeks. Mm. So with that said, hope you all enjoyed. We will see you on Wednesday. We'll have even more wonderful guests. And did briefly show Pedro doing his, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, status quo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have some we have some good friends out there that help us out. Um, there are not everybody is eco driven within this sphere that we call non corporate left politics. But not everybody small, likes to share the wealth. Well, that's for sure. That they definitely don't want to do. But thankfully we're not relying on this for income. We're relying on this to help people, and that's what it's all about. So with that said. We appreciate you all. Make sure to hit the like button, comment, do everything that you got to do. You know, the usual stuff. Not bad for a first show. Uh, It's a lot easier when we can read off of each other. So kind of take the cues and all that good stuff. What do you mean? What do you mean? Not bad for a first show. We're not sitting next to each other. We're looking at each other. So it is a little weird, but I think we're still, I mean, we've been doing this a long time now. That's true. Hand in glove. All righty, guys. We'll see you Wednesday. Bye, all Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.